you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to John chapter 17. A few weeks ago, we reminded ourselves of Christ's great commission to His people, the church. Right before His ascension back to heaven, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we've been spending our time together these past few weeks trying to better understand what it looks like to actually live that out, to take seriously Christ's command to make disciples. What should that look like in our lives individually and corporately together as a church? In the first week, we looked at Matthew chapter 4 and saw that fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples, begins with following Christ. Christ calls His people to follow Him, to follow His Lordship, His teaching, and His example. By actively seeking to follow Christ, He then transforms us into disciple-makers, into fishers of men. He causes us to become people who seek out the lost with the gospel. In the second week, we saw from Hebrews chapter 13 that part of following Christ also means following Him outside the camp. That is to say, God calls His people to live a life of sacrifice to see that disciples are made. That's what going outside the camp is all about. It's about sacrificing our time and our money and our reputation and our comfort to go to the hurting and the sinful and the despised peoples of the world in which we live. It means going where we may not want to go, going where it's not easy to go so that sinners might hear the gospel and be saved. And then last week we saw that part of making disciples is living as a body of believers, that is living as God's people who are characterized by God's love. Christ calls us, commands us to love each other with the same kind of love with which He loved His people. That kind of love will not only be attractive to those outside the church, but it will also lend credibility to His church. That's something we often lack today with the world, credibility. We sometimes don't practice what we preach. But Christ said, if you love one another as He loved us, if we love one another as Christ loved us, then the world would know, they would know we are His disciples. Christ-like love is the defining mark of Christianity. It shows the world Christ really is the crucified, risen Lord of all things, that He not only deserves our worship, but transform those who worship Him to reflect His glory. This morning we come to then the last message in this series and we end with this theme of glory. We are in the same area of the Bible where we were last week and so the context is very similar. Jesus is with his disciples on the night when he is betrayed into the hands of the Jewish leaders. He has had his last Passover meal. Judas has left to go and betray him. And in chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus has given his last teaching to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And now in chapter 17, Jesus prays for his people. All of chapter 17 is devoted to that prayer. But this morning we want to look at the first five verses that deal with Christ's glory and God's glory for His people. Follow along as I read. John chapter 17 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these things, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. May God bless the reading of his word. From these opening words of Jesus' prayer, we need to see three things about Christ's glory and God's glory. Three things that will allow us to better fulfill the Great Commission. The first thing that we need to see and we need to understand is that Christ lived to bring glory to God. Christ lived to bring glory to God. The prayer of John 17 begins with one request, just one request. Everything in these five verses is centered around Jesus' petition, God, glorify your Son. We see it right at the beginning of verse 1, at the end of verse 5, and everything in between is moving between those that one request. Jesus is praying, Father, I have been faithful to do all that you have given me to do. In fact, he is anticipating the fact that he is going to the cross very soon. He knows it is a certainty, and so he says, I have been faithful. I have been faithful. Now, glorify me as your son. What does he want? What is he asking for? What does it mean to glorify something? Well, to glorify something is to give it praise or honor. It is to clothe it with majesty or splendor. It is to hold up some person or thing to show it to be of superior worth. And Jesus is praying. He is asking God, glorify me. Father, glorify your Son. Cause me to receive praise and honor. Clothe me in majesty and splendor. Hold me up that all might see my superior worth. Glorify me. Jesus is asking to be glorified, but make careful note of why Jesus asked to be glorified. Did you see what he said? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That because, because this is what I want to happen, because this is what will happen. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You see what he's saying? You see why he is asking to be glorified? Jesus says, Father, glorify me because I know that if I am glorified, you will be glorified. If Christ is lifted up, then the Father will be lifted up. If Christ is glorified, God the Father is glorified. If Christ is shown to be of superior worth, then his heavenly Father will be shown to be of superior worth. This was the great aim of Jesus' life, to bring glory to God in heaven. It's the culmination of what we see all throughout the gospel, the gospel of John. Back in chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus wants to show God is glorious he wants to put his glory on display so that, and he does that by saying, when I come, I'm not here to do whatever I want. I'm here to do what he wants. They didn't do it grudgingly either. You know, some of us say, well, yeah, I'm sure I'm seeking God's will. But then when it comes to sin and say no to sin, we're kind of like, man, that sin would be nice. I'd really like to do that. But, you know, got to follow God's will. It's kind of this grudging thing. Like, like we really don't want to do it. But, but listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 4. My food... My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Why do you eat food? Well, we live in a country, we can eat food for any reason we want. I mean, we have comfort food, we have pleasure food. But most of the world eats because if you don't eat, you die. Life is what sustains your body. Life is what gives you strength and energy and vitality. Food gives you life. And what is Jesus saying here? The thing that I live on is doing my Father's will. 
the thing that, the thing that gets me up in the morning, the thing that gets me going. It's not my, it's not my cup of, of uh, Canaan coffee. It's, it's knowing that I get to do the will of the Father, and in doing His will, I get to bring Him glory. That is what sustains me. Then in John 8, Jesus is accused of performing miracles by demonic power. He says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father. I do not seek my own glory. Jesus says in all that he does, in all of these miracles, he's not seeking to glorify himself. He's not seeking for for his own sake, for his own honor. Rather, he is seeking the glory of God and to honor him. Even the very beginning of John's gospel, this revealing of the glory of the Father and the Son is made clear. Jesus has come to glorify God. Jesus, excuse me, the apostle John writes, Jesus, the eternal word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What glory did we see? We saw the Father's glory through His only Son. So Christ prays here, glorify your Son. Why? So that God Himself may be glorified. You cannot lift up the Son without glory going to the Father. Because the glory of Christ is the revealing, the reflecting of the glory of the Father. This is part of the Trinitarian nature of God. There is one God who has and will forever exist as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if that makes your head hurt a little bit, that's okay. Because frankly, let's just think about it. If we understood everything there was to know about God, He wouldn't be much of a God, would He? Right? You know what I'm saying? Just remember this. Every time Christ pulled back the veil of His incarnation a little bit and people saw something of His glory, when He walked on water, when He healed a man blind from birth, when He commanded all of creation to shut up and to be quiet lest His disciples continue to be fearful and think they're going to perish in the storm, when He raised the dead back to life, when He looked into the sorrowful face of a repentant sinner and said, I forgive you of your sins. Go and sin no more. His glory was revealed. And when His glory was revealed, it was the glory of the Father that was being revealed. His heavenly Father was being lifted up and exalted and magnified. And Jesus loved it. Jesus loved it. It's what got Him up going in the morning. If you you are living for the glory of God, that's going to motivate you like Jesus to get up while it's still dark and go talk to God. It's going to motivate you to actually spend time with Him. And the more time you spend with Him, the more you realize how glorious it is to be with Him and how His glory needs to be magnified. And so it's this this self-feeding cycle. God's glory needs to be displayed in my life, therefore I must spend time with God seeing His glory. And the more I do that, the more I want to fulfill the goal of displaying His glory. That was what Jesus' life is all about. And as His people, frankly, that's what our life should be about But we're going to get to that in point three. For right now, we simply need to say this. Jesus sought in all that he did to live for the glory of God. And that was supremely solved. The glory of God was supremely seen through Jesus' cross, death, and resurrection. That is, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. This This is the second thing that we want to see this morning. And that is this. Christ's death and resurrection supremely show the glory of God. Christ's death and resurrection supremely show the glory of God. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, John says, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. Verse 4, I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. In this prayer, Jesus is praying that He would be glorified, that the Father might be glorified, but He is pointing to two specific events in which He desires to be glorified. His death and His resurrection. Jesus says the hour has come. What, what hour is that? When you look through the Gospels, He will often say things like, my hour is not yet come. My, my hour is not yet come. He means the hour of His death. And what's interesting, what's interesting is that early on in John's Gospel, see this idea of glory and hour connected. And so His mom says, hey, Jesus, the, wine, the wine's gone. Can you do something about this? And, and He's like, my, my hour's not yet come. What is He saying? People are not yet ready to see me in my glory. What, what is he talking about? What is the same thing he prays for here? The cross is the means of glorifying himself and then glorifying himself, bringing glory to God. It may surprise us to think that the cross is one of the greatest moments of the glory of Christ. After all, when we think of someone glorifying themselves, it's usually not by hanging, beaten, naked, and humiliated on a bloody cross, Right? We usually think of the guy who's just hit the Grand Slam at the World Series and he's running the bases, you know, woo, you know, or back, you know, uh, aging myself a little bit in the 80s, you know, making the touchdown and doing the icky shuffle in the, in the, in the end zone, you know what I'm talking about? That's what we think of. Or maybe it's the music video where the guy's flossing a little bit with all the diamonds and all the girls and all the cars and he's kind of saying, look at me, I am, I am fly, I am all that. We say, well, that's, that's self-glorification, right? That's what we think of. And Christ says, no. No, when you, when you see me in my glory, it will be hanging on that thing. It will be hanging on that thing. Bloody, beaten, naked, and humiliated for you. That's where you will see my glory the most. Why? You say, why is that the case? Because when, when people today give praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ, why do they do it? It's for the cross. People do not worship Him as Savior and Lord because He provided wine at Cana. Because He provided fish and bread to people that were hungry. They glorify Him. They praise His name. They worship Him. They honor Him because He died for them on the cross. You go read the book of Revelation, even the angels of heaven. Why do they give Him praise? Because you died and ransomed a people for God with your blood. The cross is why he receives glory. But more than that, more than that, as Christ is glorified on the cross, so also the Father is glorified. In fact, more than anything else, Jesus went to the cross. Listen to this. More than anything else, Jesus went to the cross to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. I know that if Christian music is any indication, that might seem like an odd thing to think about for many Christians. In fact, just this past week, someone who is known for not updating Facebook nearly as often as his friends would like him to, he made a very discerning comment about one Christian song who, in his mind, uh, blew it on this point, in his word, rather. The song had Jesus going to the cross and, and, uh, because he couldn't bear to live without us. Really? Jesus went to the cross because he couldn't bear to live without me? I find that hard to believe. Or, or, or perhaps the Michael W. Smith song where, where he sings, Crucified, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Really? Above everything else you thought of me on the cross? I don't, I don't think so. Did Jesus love his people? Yes. 
Did Jesus love them enough to die for them on the cross? Yes. Did he love them enough to bear the full wrath of a righteous God against their sin because he loved them? Yes. But that doesn't mean loving the church was the ultimate motivation for the cross. That doesn't mean that is what he thought of above all. John 12, Jesus tells us that we are not mistaken in this. He is thinking of the impending cross and he says this, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus says more than anything else, more than anything else, God, as I go up to that cross, you glorify me. Because if I am glorified, you will be glorified. And that is why I have come. That you might be lifted up in glory. Jesus prayed that God would be glorified while he was on the cross, but also he noticed he prays that his glory would not terminate on the cross. Jesus prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. During Jesus' earthly ministry, during what we call the incarnation, when the the eternal Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among humanity, His glory was veiled. And it's important that you understand this point. At no time did Jesus' glory go away. At no time did He divest Himself or empty Himself in any way of His glory. He simply hid it. He simply veiled it. He simply set aside the privilege of revealing His glory for a time. Think about it like this. Remember Exodus chapter 34 when Moses, uh, the, you know, the people have just come off the incident with a golden calf where they've been given. You know, they've said, God will do whatever you ask as your people. And this is great. Here's the Ten Commandments. Keep them. Now Moses, you come to the mountain and get the rest of the law. And he's gone for too long. And so they say, well, Moses is dead. Let's make another God and let's, let's keep going. And, you know, Moses come down and he's like, you know, what is the matter with you guys? And he's, you know, in his anger, he smashes the law. He says, you've already broke it. Let's just, let's just do it visually now. And, and, and then he intercedes, though, for the people. And God spares him. He's back up on the mountain getting the tablets of stone again. And you remember that just as business is about to be concluded, Moses says, God, please show me your glory. And what does God say? He says, Moses, I don't think you really want that. Because no man can see me. No man can see my glory. No one can see me face to face and live. Therefore, I will let all of my my goodness pass by you. You say, what's the difference? Well, if looking God in the face, if seeing him face to face is beholding his glory, then kind of seeing as he, the last little bit as he walks out of the room behind the corner, you catch, that's his goodness. And so he hides Moses in his rock and he comes by and he proclaims the name, the Lord, the Lord, steadfast and abounding in mercy to generation after generation after generation. And I love what the text says. He comes down the mountain after all this and he's got the tablets and people are kind of waiting this time, you know, patiently and they see Moses coming down and they run. And Moses is like, hey, come back. It's me. What's the matter with you guys? And I love what the text says because, you know, ironically, Moses himself is writing this later after the fact. Chapter 34, verse 29. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Such was, such was the, the, the radiance, the brilliance, the glory, of just the, the fleeting, fading edge of God's glory that it literally caused Moses' face to reflect that glory. He, was, he came down shining like an angel and the people couldn't take it. That They fled. And he, he goes into the camp and they're like, you know, Moses, we can't stand to see you like this. Put this veil on. 
And so you have this incredibly bizarre thing where Moses puts this, this veil over his head when he goes in to talk to the people. But then when he goes in to talk to God, he's able to take the veil off in his presence. He goes out to talk to the people, he puts the veil back on. Well, in a very similar way, when Jesus took on flesh, the glory was still there. He just had the veil on. The glory was still there. The the glory of his eternal divinity was still within that man, but he was choosing to keep it hidden. He was choosing to veil it during his incarnation. And now, and now Jesus prays and he says, Now, Father, I've done everything. I've done everything in perfect obedience to your will. I, I, for, for, for my joy, I have done this, not begrudgingly. But now I'm, a, I'm about to die for your people to bring you glory as a God who saves. Allow me in my resurrection to go back to the glory I once knew. Allow me to go back to that former, that former eternal unveiled glory that I shared with you before we even created the world. And he's not asking, get rid of the flesh. You understand the incarnation is permanent in that sense. When Christ took on the body, he didn't get rid of the body. A body came out of the ground, albeit a glorified, resurrected body that is the pattern of the one that will await us. But he is forever now glorified flesh. But he is asking, may my full deity, my full glory now be made evident. That's what he's asking for here. God, glorify me on the cross. Glorify me in my resurrection. That Those two events are ultimately where God's glory is seen the most clear. Now, this is a series on living as fishers of men, living as Christ people called out to make disciples of all nations. What in the world does this have to do with fulfilling that mission? I know some of you are asking that. What does this have to do with fulfilling this mission? Okay, here we go. If Jesus prayed that he would be glorified so that the Father might be glorified, And if Jesus is supremely glorified on the cross and in his resurrection, then the way for us to bring glory to God is by proclaiming the the glory of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. In other words, if we desire God to be glorified as Christ did, the best way to bring him glory is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with our words and with our lives. Now do you see how those things tie together? Do you see the the massive import of what it means to make disciples? It's the third thing that we want to see, and really it's the, the application of the other two points. Christ's people proclaim the gospel to bring glory to God. Yes, we're going out and making disciples, but ultimately, why are we doing that? To bring glory to God. John writes, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Because of the work that Christ was to do on the cross, he was granted authority over all flesh. Specifically, he was given authority to save all the Father would give to him, all the Father would draw to him. And all of this comes through the glorification of God through the Son. So Jesus is is saying that to see God's glory is to see what he has done for sinners in Christ. To see God's glory in Christ is to have eternal life. Isn't that what Jesus said? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not at its core the pleasure of having a life that never ends. 
No, Jesus says eternal life at its core is having a knowledge of the one who is himself eternal. And how has the Father made himself known? How has he given us that knowledge? How do we come to know him? We have come to know him through his Son. Thus, the knowledge that Jesus is speaking about here is not some kind of book knowledge. It's not just like something you read and you get the facts down and say, great, I'm good to go. It's not that kind of knowledge. It's not just knowing God exists or even knowing some rules He wants us to obey. It's knowing Him as one person knows another person. It's knowing Him well enough to see His glory and so desire fellowship with Him, to take joy in Him, to love Him to the point of devoting our life to Him. That's eternal life. And that kind of knowing only comes when people hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes when we proclaim to them the realities of the glory of God in Christ in His death and in His resurrection. When we explain that on the cross, Christ bore the righteous wrath of a holy God against sin so that sinners who deserve eternal death in hell can instead be forgiven and have eternal life with God, when we explain that Christ did not stay dead, but was raised back to eternal glory that He once had as now the Lord of all things, the glory of God is seen in that. It is seen in that. And it's seen in such a way that people come to love it and desire it and believe in it. And so receive eternal life. This is how we make disciples, but more importantly, this is how we bring glory to God. At the end of the day, what, that is what fulfilling the Great Commission is all about. Yes, we should have compassion on those who apart from Christ will die forever in hell. We should be motivated by love. But more than love and compassion, we should long for God to be made much of. We should long for Him to receive the glory He deserves. That's what drove Christ to the cross And that's what should drive his people as well. This is why John Piper is so right when he says this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. Missions, evangelism, making disciples, fishing for men, is about working to see that people come to see the glory of God in Christ and that they give their lives over in worship to them because of it. Now, if if that is really true, that has massive implications for how we go about doing the Great Commission. First, more than anything, it means this. We're not doing this for ourselves. We're not making disciples for ourselves. We're 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 not asking the question, how is this going to make me look good? How is this going to make our church look good? How is this going to bring us glory? We're not asking those kinds of questions. We don't send people to West Africa to make a name for ourselves in our association of churches. We do not hold a VBS in order to make our church bigger. We do not give sacrificially of our resources seeking the glory of Bangor Baptist Church. No, we are seeking above all things to bring glory to God in Christ. Therefore, 
in everything that we do, we're asking, is this going to bring glory to Christ? How can we go about this ministry in such a way that Christ is magnified and not ourselves? How is this going to translate into how the world perceives us? Or is this going to lift us up? Or is this going to lift Christ up? Is this going to lift Christ up or is it going to detract from the lifting up of Christ? But before we can even do any of that, we ourselves must love the glory of Christ above all things. This is why Piper says that that worship is not only the goal, it is the fuel of missions. How How can you work to get someone to love the glory of Christ if you don't love the glory of Christ? You can't do it. You can't do it. Therefore, he says, if the pursuit of man's good and the affections of the heart and the priorities of the church is preeminent above the glory of God, then man will not be well served and God will not be duly honored. He says, look, I'm not saying you pull back on missions. I'm saying you push harder for the glory of God. And the natural result will be a flaming, passionate desire to go and see Christ's name where he is not named. The more we gaze on the beauty of the glory of God in Christ, the more we will desire others to do the same. The more we see the magnifying of his glory as our greatest joy, the more we will long for others to find their joy in God. So to be fervent, and zealous about making disciples, we must beg like Moses, please, Lord, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. That every day we take, we take the gospel in our minds and in the word, and we stare long and deep into the glory of God in Christ there. And we allow that to become the great passion of our life. We work hard so that like John Owen, we can come to a place where we pray, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live. Hereon would I dwell in thought and affection until all things here below become as dead and deformed things no longer in any way calling out for my affections. In the journals of Henry Martin, an Anglican missionary in India and Iran from previous generations, We read about him being a guest of a Muslim friend for dinner. While they were eating, the Muslim host begins to describe this painting he has seen of Jesus bowing down before Muhammad. And Martin writes in his journal that when he heard that, he was, quote, cut to the soul at this blasphemy. He says, the host could clearly tell I was visibly shaken by this. And so he said, why do you find this so offensive? And here's what Martin said to him. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to always thus be dishonored. The question we have to ask of ourselves is this. Is it hell for us if Christ is dishonored? When his name is used as a profanity and people walk around worshiping anything And everything other than Christ does our gut wrench and does our soul tremble. Or do do we go on with life as usual? We are a people who bear the name of Christ. We call ourselves Christians. And if we are going to fulfill Christ's command to make disciples, if we are to do that for the glory of God, then we first must have cemented in our minds and in our hearts a great love and passionate desire for the glory of Christ ourselves. Only then 
Only then will we be able to love the loveless and go to hard places and to make sacrifices and to put the interest of others before our own interests. Only then will we be able to go and to do all things for the sake of His name. Therefore, let us strive to love and to cherish the glory of God above all things. Fathers, we come before you, we confess, God, that we do not love you as we should. And yet, Father, you have loved us with an immeasurable love, and we pray, God, that you will be at work in our hearts and minds as we desire to be faithful to your calling, as we seek to be faithful to live out the great commission and make disciples. Father, we pray that we would spend time gazing at your glory in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that, Father, by gazing at His glory, we will come to love Him more deeply. And, Father, we will come to be passionate and zealous about seeing His glory proclaimed among the nations. Father, this is not something that's going to come naturally to us. This is something that you're going to have to do in us, a supernatural spiritual work by the power of your Spirit. And so, Father, that is what we ask for this morning, that your Spirit would be work at work in our lives, bringing us closer to behold the glory of Christ. Amen.